Good morning. We're going to be in Psalm 110 this morning, uh, and as you will see, as we work through this, it is a psalm that uh, provides a bridge between Genesis and Hebrews, the beginning of the Bible, and a book near the end of the Bible, and explains how Jesus, as a descendant of Judah, can be both a king and a priest. Carefully reading its seven verses, one easily senses its beauty, its, its perfection, its, its comprehensive scope. One cannot read Psalm 110 without realizing here is something that only God himself could have written. Even so, we're going to discover that the Hebrew is difficult to translate in places. It's a challenging psalm in the original languages, and so there is a Greek version of the Old Testament as well called the Septuagint, and because of the difficulties, it's not surprising that uh, the two versions differ, and so when we turn to English translations, really both the ESV and the NIV and other English translations. Most of them are combinations of the Hebrew text and the Greek text. We, we call that an eclectic translation, and uh, we'll point out the difficulties when we come to them. But all of that notwithstanding, God has allowed his truth to ring out loud and clear in English as well. Here then is the word of the Lord, Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the days of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Psalm 110 is bigger than any of us. Psalm 110 is certainly, certainly bigger than me. As we look inward to your holy words and as we look outward to your entire word in the Bible, in all of your scriptures, and even as we look outward to the universe and beyond, to our King, to our Lord, and to our priest, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will give us to understand this psalm just as you would 
have us understand it, but that in the end you would be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Having read the psalm, the first observation that I would like to make is, uh, is we can read through and study Psalm 110 while keeping Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 clearly in mind. Uh, look in particular for the Lord Jesus leading and equipping us in our spiritual battles that he and we in holy garments will always win. Let's work through this text line by line and then look at some great applications. First, this is a psalm of David. It was written by David, and it therefore dates to about 1,000 B.C., about 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus. It is a royal psalm, uh, like Psalm 2, 18, and 72, but like Psalm, and psalm 2 and 72, it is also a messianic psalm so that it looks forward to uh, the, the future kingship of Jesus as our Messiah. The first verse is, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I've always found that verse a little bit uh, confusing because of the various players involved, and yet the verse itself has a slightly different interpretation uh, depending upon who would be reading this particular verse. Now, as I said, this is a royal psalm. Uh, it could have been recited in the days of uh, King David, for example, by, by Nathan or another court prophet, and in which case, uh, to paraphrase what the court prophet would be saying, is, is may the Lord, that is God, give you the, the king to be coronated, or whose coronation we're celebrating, a place of honor while he crushes your enemies and subjects them to you. And then David could have subsequently uh, framed these prophetic words into a psalm. With that understanding, however, there is another way, and perhaps the correct way of reading this psalm, and that is how our Lord Jesus Christ himself interprets it. So this is how we're going to interpret this psalm, you know, with the authority of Jesus. In, in Matthew chapter 12 and in excuse me, in Mark chapter 12, in Matthew chapter 22, and also in Luke 20, uh, Jesus explains that the Messiah is more than a biological descendant of David, since David, the author of the psalm, calls him Lord. So with this understanding then, it would be David himself who is the speaker at the time that the psalm is written. And moreover, uh, as Jesus interprets the psalm authoritatively, he points out that David wrote this in the spirit. 
which means that it's a messianic psalm, and it is possible that David himself did not comprehend the full messianic implications of what he had written. Perhaps the best explanation of this verse comes from Peter, who would have heard Jesus as, as Jesus taught uh, this verse uh, in various settings. In, in the explanation is in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. The audience is, is slightly different. In one case, it's the Pharisees and one case, it's the, it's the Sadducees. In one case, it's just, it's just people listening to, to Jesus. But it, it all comes together, and it's in all three Gospels for a, a reason. But then Peter, who would have been present, explains this verse again, and he perhaps gives the best explanation at all because he gives a little bit more detail in the, first, in the second chapter of Acts. And this, in fact, is is the first sermon that Peter gave, if you would, or Peter's first speech after he had received, after the first Christians, in fact, including Peter, had received the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Peter did is he contrasted King David, who had died and was buried in a tomb, with the risen and living Jesus who reigns at the right hand of the Father as both Lord and Messiah. As I mentioned, this psalm is very, it's the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. In fact, the phrase, sit at my right hand, occurs 18 times in, in the New Testament. If you, if you take the word sit or the word seated, or is, if you, if you combine those, you get, it appears 18 times throughout the New Testament. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, Hebrews, and 1 Peter. So it is very compelling, really 18 times uh, spread out through nine books in the New Testament. And it is, in fact, there's no accident there. I mean, I mean, when the Lord repeats himself to that extent, there's something that he wants us to understand, and, and he wants us to have this image of, of the risen Jesus as Lord seated at the right hand of the Father. This is perhaps the most compelling image that we have. Even so, This verse is used in more than one way in the New Testament. Jesus, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, explains uh, directly what Psalm 110 means. In all three of the Synoptic Gospels, after Jesus has been arrested, he uses this image of being at the right hand of the Father when he is being tried. Uh, specifically, we read in Matthew, Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's Matthew 26, 24. Perhaps the most compelling uh, use of this image 
at all in the New Testament comes from our first martyr, Stephen, while he is being stoned to death. Right before he dies, very shortly before he dies, right as he is forgiving those who uh, are stoning him, Stephen says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, that is Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that is indeed a shocking image. But the Lord wants us to have this image of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. Moving on then to verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. It is the Lord who is leading the king and is the power behind him. This, this verse, since it is a psalm of David, it is about a descendant of Judah, it encourages us to make a comparison with, uh, with Jacob's blessing to Judah shortly before he dies, uh, also, also messianic. Uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We see in verse 2 that the Lord has given to the Lord, uh, the Lord under, un, under the Lord, or in, in a sense of if it's, if it's Jesus and, and the Lord there, their father and son, they're equal, but, uh, but the one Lord is, is giving something to, something to the son. The Lord has given his son the mandate to rule. Moving on then to verse 3, and this is perhaps the most challenging verse in the psalm, just in terms of the language. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of, of your youth shall be yours. If you have an ESV Bible, you'll notice that there are three textual notes attached to this one verse. Uh, it's hard translation. Uh, for the sake of completeness, we're going to compare this with the NIV 2011, and then I will paraphrase it for you. The NIV 2011 reads, Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The general sense is that the king will be a warrior and a natural leader with willing troops. They will be arrayed with spiritual rather than physical armor. They will be newly and continually regenerated. We say they will be newly regenerated because words like morning and dew, and we say that they will be continually, or we say that they'll be regenerated, you know, because of the word womb that's in this passage. It's, it's very, very poetic, and it reminds us of some other passages in Scripture. When we, we say that the people will offer themselves freely, 
Uh, this reminds us of the song of Deborah in Judges uh, 5 2. Uh, since the troops rely on the power of holiness or the holiness of their garments, perhaps the whole armor of God, this passage even reminds us of Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. So, you know, we, we haven't gone that far from Ephesians in turning to uh, Psalm 110 today. The battle is therefore between God and the forces of evil. And one passage that many commentators uh, bring up in this context is uh, Daniel chapter 10, verses 13, and it's, it's one of my favorite verses. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. You know, there's this constant heavenly battle going on, and, and it, is a, it is a spiritual battle against Satan for our, our very souls. And so as we read through Psalm 110, and we, we see this great declaration that, uh, that the Lord has made concerning his son Jesus in verse 1, we also see that there's a lot of military imagery here, and this is the spiritual battle to be fought and the spiritual battle that will ultimately be won as we read on. Moving on then to perhaps the richest verse of the psalm, if, if one can even say that one verse is richer than another, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is one powerful verse. If you, if you just stop to think about what's going on here, everything that God says is true. If that's the case, why does the Lord swear an oath? The only conclusion we can draw is that he is doing that for our sake. He is trying to point out to us that he is saying something which is extraordinarily important, absolutely true, as is everything that comes from the mouth of God, something that is everlasting, eternal, and something that is really important for us to understand. And that's, that's why we have uh, the fact that this, this is an oath. And what, we're, what we are told to understand is that you, the object of this psalm, which at this point we know to be Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot going on here, and we're going to take this step by step. First, there's the background from uh, Genesis uh, 14 that uh, Steve read for us this morning. I'll kind of summarize it for you a little bit. Uh, there was 
a confederation of nine kings under King uh, <clears throat> Kedar Laomer. I'm going to call, call him King Ked for short as we go through this. Uh, so there was this confederation of nine kings under, under his leadership. And then there was a rebellion. Five of those kings rebelled against the four. The four were still being led by King Ked. Okay? The four kings prevailed. They captured a bunch of territory that included Sodom and Gomorrah. And oh, incidentally, Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, was living in Sodom. He was also taken prisoner. And when Abraham or when Abram heard about it, he sent a delegation of only 318 men uh, who were born in his household, kind of like a kind of like a crack special special warfare operation or something. They attacked from two directions and they defeated the four kings. Only 318 men. The Lord had clearly led them to this victory. So. Abram and his men returned with all the possessions that had been taken, including Lot and his possessions. Now, when he returned, when, when he got back home, Abram was met by Melchizedek, the king of Salem and priest of God Most High, who blessed Abram by God Most High. And then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything or a tithe. And so that is the background from Genesis 14. With that, in order to understand this verse, there are two important theological questions that we need to answer. The first question is, what is the connection between Melchizedek and the house of Judah? And then the second question is, how can the offices of king and priest be assigned to one individual? Let us start with the first question. What is the connection between Melchizedek and the house of Judah? First, Melchizedek is introduced as the king of Salem, where Salem is likely short for Jerusalem. And Salem and the word shalom in Hebrew both come from the same root. If you were to try to think of an analog in English, think of, think of a, just a word composed of the consonants S, L, and M. And you could either form Salem from that, or you could form Shalom from that. And, of course, Shalom means peace and a great deal more. David conquered Jerusalem, making it the capital of Israel, and spent the final 33 years of his kingship there. So, Melchizedek was a very early king of Salem or Jerusalem. And Daniel 
or excuse me, David in military terms took Jerusalem, occupied it, and made it his own. But there's more to it even than that because as it turns out, Jerusalem is the place that God chose to place his name. For example, we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, where Solomon is praying, and he's actually quoting a prophecy to his father, David. Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So God chose David and thus his descendants to be kings, and he chose Jerusalem to be his city. And so that answers the first question of what is the connection between Melchizedek and the house of Judah. The second question that we must answer is how can the office of king and priest be assigned to one individual? Here's the problem. In Torah, the priesthood was assigned to the descendants of Aaron. Aaron being the great grandson of Levi. David and his descendants, in a word, all the kings that resided in Jerusalem were from the house of Judah. And that is that was, in Old Testament times, not a good thing. For example, late in the time of the kings, there was one king whose name was King Uzziah. Scripture teaches that he grew proud to his destruction by entering the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. God punished Uzziah in an awful way. God made, God turned Uzziah into a leper, and Uzziah was forced to live for the rest of his life outside Jerusalem. And if you stand back and think of the irony of that, that is indeed compelling. If you think of holy as something that that is 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 got to be separated. God made Uzziah holy in a very negative way. So Uzziah as king and not priest violated the holiness of the temple and God gave him the perfect albeit severe punishment. So here then is the problem with bringing the priesthood 
in the house of Judah together. What then is the solution? The two houses merge in the vision of the crown and the temple. This is in Zechariah. In fact, in Zechariah chapter 6, and, and I'm going to read, read a few verses from there. It's really very compelling. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his people, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. The branch that Zechariah is referring to comes from Jeremiah 33, 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Melchizedek was introduced as the king of Salem, but what is interesting is that the name Melchizedek can be translated as king of righteousness as well. And so we can look at this and we can see how we've come full circle. And in fact, it's clear that there are no accidents in Scripture. You know, as strange as it might seem on the outset that the office of king and the office of priest would be brought together we see that Scripture has prepared us for this great fact very carefully. And in particular, in this prophecy in chapter 6 of Zechariah. So, the name Melchizedek appears in Genesis chapter 14. As we have seen, it appears... Uh, in Psalm 110, verse 4, it also appears about eight times in the letter to the Hebrews. In fact, and I kind of like doing visuals like this just to kind of emphasize the theology. I've put some bookmarks in my Bible here. This, this would be Genesis right here. And then right in the middle of the Bible, you've got Psalm 110. And then at the very end of the Bible, or very near to the end of the Bible, you've got the letter to the Hebrews, and you've got Melchizedek right here. So when the author to the letter of the Hebrews talks about, uh, talk, talks about our Lord Jesus Christ being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, there was no accident there at all. And... This morning, we're really focusing on Psalm 110 in the Old Testament, and I'm using primarily Old Testament logic to bring these ideas together. I'm not going to say a lot about the book of Hebrews. Uh, that could be a year or two of uh, sermons at some point in the future. But I will say this, that the author to the author of the book of Hebrews 
uses a slightly different kind of logic than we use in the Old Testament. He uses a, uh, a lesser to greater logic. You, you see this in the prologue in chapter 1 of Hebrews, and you also see it as, it, as soon as the author of Hebrews has identified uh, Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he then makes a very careful argument to show that this priesthood is superior in every way to the Levitical priesthood that we uh, saw in the first five books of the Bible. So it's, it's a different kind of logic. And it's, it's a kind of logic which tracks with uh, Platonic philosophy. And about all we can say is that God's timing is perfect here. God's timing is perfect here because he's given us an entirely different perspective in the book of Hebrews, and I can barely scratch the, uh, the surface there. But with that understanding, it's clear that Psalm 110 forms a bridge between uh, the beginning of the Bible and Hebrews. The theology of Jesus as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek is therefore tightly integrated in the overarching biblical narrative, in the overall story of the Bible, Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood that Melchizedek in his name represents, is very tightly woven into the whole story of the Bible. And Psalm 110 is right there in the middle of it all. There is one other mention of Melchizedek, and I'm only going to touch on this because there's not a lot understood about it. Melchizedek's name also comes up in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's actually Scroll 11Q13, sometimes referred to as 11Q Melchizedek. It is a fragment from the Dead Sea Scrolls from uh, Cave 11, which is where 11 comes from. And in this, and the scroll actually has two columns in the column on the left is almost entirely illegible, and the column on the right of the scroll is maybe, maybe one-third legible and maybe two-thirds uh, partially legible, so it's very difficult to read. But what we understand is in this particular depiction, okay, Melchizedek leads God's army against the forces of darkness. It is, in fact, a commentary or a midrash on the Jubilee in Leviticus 25. And hence, the object the, of the goal of leading his army against the forces of darkness is freedom. Like the freedom promised by the Jubilee, and perhaps also like the freedom that is associated with the gospel. I could say much more about verse 4, and I've only scratched the surface, but we'll move on to verse 5 and verse 6. 
The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. In a word, the Lord is sovereign over the world's governments. Verses 5 and 6 are also reminiscent of another messianic psalm, Psalm 2. In fact, in Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6, we read, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have set my king on who would that be? Jesus, of course, on my holy hill. And that brings us right back to verse 1, then, of Psalm 110. Don't you see? It all fits together. And then finally, verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. The first thing we see from this verse is that the Lord and the army that he leads in his spiritual battles will ultimately be victorious. The second thing that we see from this verse is that in spite of all the military imagery in Psalm 110, the psalm ends on a note of peace. So, the end of all this is victory, spiritual victory over the forces of darkness and peace or shalom, the kind of peace that only can come from the Lord and the Lord our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's, let's look at a few uh, simple applications. First, a priest is an intermediary between God and us. Having lived a perfect human life and having been the only human being to ever have done so, Jesus is perfectly positioned to be our unique priest. He has lived our lives. He has felt what we feel. He has been tempted as we have been tempted. And in the end, he will. And we will, to the extent that we follow Jesus, be victorious. The verse that this reminds me of, of course, is 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he can also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And this is true because Jesus lived a perfect life and is the perfect priest. Second point of application, 
Jesus leads us into our spiritual battles, and with him, we are victorious. Jesus leads us into our spiritual battles, and with him, we are victorious. I, I wanted to pick some very famous uh, Pauline quotations here to round things out. And, the, and so I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we become the righteousness of God. That is victory. That is perfect victory. My third application point comes from one of the commentators that I studied as I uh, was uh, preparing this uh, message for you this morning. It comes from, comes from Dan Estes in the New American Commentary, and I thought it was very timely, and so I'm just going to quote it directly, and then we'll pray. Human leaders, both in the religious and political realms, are finite and fallible. And as a result, they often disappoint. The hearts of humans yearn for something much better than that. Jesus Christ will be the perfect king and priest, who will satisfy fully the longings of the human heart. As king, Christ will rule over the world. And as priest, he perfectly connects humans with God. As the people of God appropriate Psalm 110 as their own song, their hearts are prompted to cry out, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This blessed hope sustains them when so much in the world today is so wrong. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we can only thank you for Psalm 110. And as we sang before this message, there is still mystery here. There's there's, there's, there's mystery in the language, and there's, there's mystery in the theology. We acknowledge that Psalm 110 is, is, is bigger than, than all of us, and I, I confess, Heavenly Father, that it's certainly much, much bigger than me. We pray, Heavenly Father, that in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he would be our Lord that he would lead us victoriously in our spiritual battles. That as our priest, he would understand us. He would, he would be our intercessor. He would be our perfect intercessor. We, we pray, Heavenly Father, that all these things will be in our mind and on our heart daily hourly, even minute by minute, because there is no, there are no greater truths anywhere. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us your word. Thank you in particular for giving us Psalm 110. We pray these things through your Son, our Lord and Priest,
Jesus Christ.